0: My name is Keith Lewis. I'm an alcoholic. I, it's great to be here. I, uh, this is very exciting to me. Um, what a small group. Just kidding. Just kidding. Got to be different. That's all. Just, uh, I, uh, I knew about you before I came here. Um, there's a gentleman who used to stagger in and out of this club. Uh, his name is Tom B. He, he now uh, 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 lives in North Carolina. And he's a dear friend of mine, and he's sober for about six years now. And he's a wonderful man and a wonderful member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and a wonderful husband and a wonderful father. And he talked fondly. He wanted to come down with me to see you and thank you for putting up with him drunk so that now he can be sober. Uh, but his daughter, gorgeous little daughter, is having some serious surgery Monday morning, so please remember them in your prayers. I'm here with my wife, Julia, and we want to thank you very much for inviting us. Um, I was sitting thinking, particularly as you talked about the history, that, um, you know, if you go someplace, you can tell where the traditions are lived. Uh, (laughs) We're thrilled to be here tonight, actually. Thank you. Uh, that's a friendly bunch. <laughs> uh, <man. laughs> I'm sorry, honey. Uh, you'll have to take a plane home.
1: uh.
0: <laughs> Like I say, all well, kidding aside, um, uh, you, you, it's, it's a thrill to be in a group that's a group. Uh, one of the things I often hear is I, I get around to, to meetings and to, uh, to conferences and things all over the country, and, and you can always tell the place that has great group activity. Uh, often you'll hear, go to a lot of meetings, and, and I think that's true in the beginning. I think that uh, in the beginning we can't go to too many meetings. But the places that have old timers, the places that have people who stay and stay active, do so because of a strong home group. And I really want to congratulate you on having a strong home group. I I got sober in an area, Washington, D.C., that has a strong home group tradition. And it was like a getting well machine. Uh, You had to work at not getting sober in an atmosphere like that. I mean, you really had to be determined not to get well. Um, I also want to thank our, our, our speaker this afternoon. I really enjoyed her very much. If you missed her, I would urge you to, to get her tape because she has a wonderful message. She is one of those people who came to AA and kept coming back and kept coming back until it worked. And my story is different than that. I, I came to AA and somewhere along the line early on, even before I got to my first meeting, I knew that if I took one more drink of alcohol, I'd die. But more importantly, I knew that knowing that would never keep me from taking it, that uh, that I could not be frightened into being sober. I worked at a medical center, and I used to go to autopsies. They had, uh, you know, one of these deals where where they would post what people died of. And then if you were interested in that, you could go watch the autopsy. It was something like coming attractions. And, and, uh, and I'd watch this list of, of uh, corpses, and... Um, and they would have chronic alcoholism, and I'd run down and watch it. I hated that stuff, but I'd, I'd go down and watch it. And, uh, you know, I'd watch it as long as I could. And then I, when I couldn't stand it anymore, I'd go running out of there, and I'd go to Cl- Clyde's or Chadwick's or someplace, and, and I'd, I'd run in, and I'd say to Vinny, you better give me a double. And he said, well, you always get a double. I said, well, you better give me a triple. And then I said, you'll never guess what I just saw. And then I would explain to everybody sitting at the bar... <laughs> What I had just seen, and they'd all get it triple too, and then, <laughs> then we would sit around and discuss this. We'd say, how can anybody hate themselves that much? I mean, their problem is they have a poor self-image, and uh, and all that stuff. And, and so I, I discovered early on that I would never get sober because I was frightened. I would only get sober because, uh, actually the grace of God. And it happened for me on May the 13th, 1973. And so three days before I came to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, I was 29 years of age. My life was over. I had virtually destroyed and violated everything that had anything to do with my life. I came to you. And by the grace of God and good, mean sponsors and wonderful fellowship (laughs) um, and the 12 steps and mostly a God that I've come to know and to grow, to love and want to serve, I haven't had to take a drink from that day until this one. For that, I am truly, truly grateful. Uh, when I came here, my mustache was not gray, and I was, uh, I was thin and all those things. Uh, and you've kept me and loved me for the last 20-plus years. I'm from Ohio. You might, uh, might have noticed that I don't speak like I'm from North Carolina. I'm, I'm still working on it. My wife gives me lessons. Uh, I've learned to take one-syllable words and make them into three-syllable words. Uh, The way they do in North Carolina, and, uh, uh, but North Carolina is now my home. But I I was born in Ohio, uh, little town, Martins Ferry. If you've never been there, I wouldn't bother. Uh, (laughs) it's been canceled. Uh, uh, I'm the uh, second oldest, the eldest son in a family of ten children. I'm Irish, I won't tell you what church we went to, you're going to have to, I will however give you a hint, bingo, I'm
1: not going to say any more about
0: that, Um, I, um, as I look back at that time, uh, what I remember mostly about being young was being afraid. Uh, I I lived in a family where there was a lot of fear, but I seem to have more of it than everybody else. And and I've looked back at this as objectively as I can, and I really believe that that's true. For whatever reason, I was born, or very early on, uh, I developed a spiritual sickness called fear that we talk about in our book. And, And then I developed a whole set of old ideas which did not serve me well. But I thought they were true because I didn't know anything but my ideas. I'll give you an example. I had something that lived under my bed. Now, I don't know if you've ever had anything like that. But but at night, I could lay there and I could press my little ear against the mattress. And I could hear it moving around down there. (laughs) And I knew what it was there for. It was waiting for me to dangle my little legs over the side of the bed, and I was history. You know, and I'd never come back. And the reason I knew that was true was because I'd never met a kid who came back. And so I'd lay there at night just thinking about stuff like that, you know. The rest of the family would be asleep, and I'd be laying there just practicing fear. And I don't know why that was. And, uh, and you know, and, and it talks about in the book. It talks about fear being woven through the fabric of our lives. And, and that was absolutely true for me. And fear is such an insidious, controlling phenomenon. I'll, t- I'll tell you. When when I moved to North Carolina, I bought a little house down on Carolina Beach, where we now live. And the name of it is "Cz Does It," clever. But my ex-wife called me up, and she said. See, she said, I am surprised that you bought a house on the ocean. And I said, why? And she said, well, the way you hate the ocean. And I thought, hate the ocean? I don't hate the ocean. I thought about it. and then I remembered what had happened. You see, I have a fear of height, a terrible fear of height. And I could never let anybody know about that. See, the way it is with fear is you can't let anybody know. Because then everybody will know and they'll all go, look at him, he's afraid. We knew he was nobody. And, and so inside his fear of height, and we lived in Washington DC. And we went to the ocean one time. Now to go to the ocean from Washington, DC, you have to go across something called the Bay Bridge. Now the Bay Bridge is three hundred miles high and five hundred miles long. <laughs> and they make you stop in the middle of the bridge. It's, got, it's, it's required. You've got to stop in the middle of the bridge. And I'm sitting there absolutely terrified of this, and I'm sitting next to the woman i married to, the mother of our children, and I can't tell her I'm afraid of height. I mean, if you can't tell the person you're married to what you're afraid of, what a prison. And so instead of telling her I was afraid to go across the bridge, which would have been easy because then we could have driven up around Baltimore, we could have gotten there anyway I told her I hated the ocean (laughs) and that's sorta that is a thumbnail sketch of the way I live my life with this this thing called fear I would never tell anybody about the thing under my bed when I was in the Marine Corps I had this the way I dealt with my fear of heights was see I thought what you did with fear was you you became brave I thought the way you deal with fear is you become brave you don't tell anybody about it and you just go be brave And so I thought, gee, this fear thing of height, this is really, this will ruin your life. So I start looking around for what I can do to overcome this fear of height. And so I I volunteered to go to jump school. I figured if you jump out of airplanes, you won't be afraid of height anymore. Fortunately, fortunately, I had busted a kidney up a few months before overcoming another fear. And... So they wouldn't let me go to jump school, but what they would let me do, do is go to mountain climbing school. So I'm out in the Sierra Nevadas in California in the middle of a snowstorm, repelling off the sides of mountains, drunk. You've got to be drunk to repel off the side of mountains if you're afraid of height. And and what I learned was that I had damn good reason to be afraid of heights. So, so what I discovered was that the cure was worse than the problem. And so when I came to you, I had a terrible fear of heights. I mean, just an awful fear of heights. And, and you know, I, I learned about that old idea when I, I was sober for about six months, and I, I got an opportunity to go to Paris, France and study. And my sponsor just happened to be going through France when I was over there. And he stopped, and uh, we, we spent a week together. And uh, one of the things we did was drove down, took a train down to Chartres to see the beautiful cathedral down there and, and we're getting off the train and we're, I was so excited to be with my sponsor He's the greatest guy I knew and my best friend and, and knew some of my fears but not all of them and we're walking across the square and, uh, and he was telling me what a beautiful cathedral was he said you know they have a catwalk that is clear up the top of the cathedral and we can go up there and lean out and look down into the cathedral and see everything at once and my heart was in my throat and I began to sweat, but most of all I began to get brave. And and but and I stopped and I said, Dan, I said, I, I can't do that, you see. I, I have a terrible fear of height. And he said, Oh, you have the old fear of height problem, huh? He said, A lot of us have had that. He said, You don't have to go up there. He said, Or you could go part way. Now there's a novel concept for an alcoholic, you
1: know? huh? <laughs>
0: He said, or you could go until you become frightened, then you could take my hand, and we could go together. And that's the difference between being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and not being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I, uh, I uh, had a first drinking experience. Uh, I don't know if it's important, but it seems to be necessary to be an alcoholic. Very few... Although I've met a few who haven't, but... Uh, um, I was five years old and my dumb brother Denny was four I have a brother Denny he's a dumb guy and um, <laughs> Mitzi reminded me of it I met Mitzi ten years ago at a young people's thing here in, in Atlanta but um, uh, my father was watching us Denny and myself and uh, my mother was out she was either having a baby or to bingo or something and uh, <laughs> and she was watch. he was watching us and we rarely had alcohol around the house, but I thought that Dad probably thought it might be kind of cute, so so he got us each a beer, and we set out, and, and we, they had those little jelly glasses. A few of the original members might remember these. Um, uh, they, they had cartoon characters on them. Remember those little jelly glasses? Mine had Superman on it. I don't know if it's significant, but uh, <laughs> psychologists might think so, but... Uh, but I drank my beer, and my dad drank his beer, and Dum Denny drank his beer. And, um then I was fine, but, uh, I'll never forget as long as I live, old Dum Denny was, uh, slid down out of the chair, and he was rolling around under the kitchen table, singing, <laughs> singing Mary Had a Little Lamb, and, and, uh, other drinking songs, and, uh, and my, my father sort of panicked, you know, and he, he wrestled Denny down and he got his clothes off and he put his jammies on him, you know, the kind with the feet and the trap door and everything. And he took him upstairs and put him in bed and he said to me, he said, son, go to bed. I said, okay, dad. So I went up and got in that bed with something that lived under it. And, uh, and uh, dad said, don't say anything to your mother about this and I'll take you to the movie Saturday. I thought, well, that's a good deal. But Denny wasn't hearing it. Denny was singing and laughing and carrying on. Now, never forget this as long as I live. Old old Denny stood up and urinated on the floor.
1: And
0: I remember watching this thinking, you know, there's a kid who's powerless over alcohol and who's likely to become a man. And, you know, (laughs) the... The strangest thing happened to Denny, you know, he just never really made it. He uh, he never developed. You know, you figure with a start like that, and he just He did some strange things. I'll give you some examples, okay? Denny went to one college. It gets worse. He had one major. You know? And he graduated on time. He went to one graduate school. Yeah, you're getting ahead of me here. He graduated on time with a 4.0 average, you know. He got like six or seven job offers. And he took one. He's worked for this company now for 25 years. He's an executive vice president in a large international corporation. But the strangest thing of all was he married one woman. You know, now here's a guy who had the world in the palm of his hand when he was four years old and he just let it slip through his fingers, you know <laughs> you know I had to I had to work at this thing. I was twenty three years old before I urinated on the bedroom floor you know? I um you know what happens to a lot of people who who are whose fabric is woven with fear and shot through with fear is that uh, I got tired of being afraid so so I began to act out if uh, we, we were kind of poor um if we'd have been rich I think I probably would have been termed as an acting out adolescent but we were poor so I was just a little punk and uh <laughs> And and one of the things I did, I went to this this Catholic high school, and um, and we had some interesting characters there. We had a nun, who ran the library. Her name was Sister Victoria, and uh, uh, I, I think a lot about Sister Victoria now. She she used to walk around this library, you know, and, and just strut around this thing. And uh, and it, we we've been back to visit, and it was a tiny little room with a with a bunch of old books and. It had one magazine rack in it, you know, but she would strut around this library acting like she was doing God's will or something, you know, and, um, and it occurred to me that it, she acted like it was a library of Congress. And uh, because I think she discovered that great secret that if you're doing God's will, wherever you are is magnificent. And she would say dumb things like, uh, you know, every boy is a prince and every girl is a princess because we have a father who's a king. And you know, and I, we'd get her behind her back. We'd call each other Prince Keith and Princess Mary, and uh, and all that stuff. And and um, and th- th- what was significant about Sister Victoria was that uh, when you'd serve detention, which I did a lot of, you'd do it in the library. And uh, and and what we had to do was make rosary beads. You know, for few heretics, those are things that Catholics pray on. And um, <laughs> And you'd have to make these. And the way they are, there are five or ten beads in five decades, you know. And and they'd give us pliers and little beads. And and for detention, I'd make rosary beads. And then they'd take these rosary beads and they'd send them to the missions all over the world. And uh, I spent a lot of time with Sister Victoria. And she used to put me behind a magazine rack by myself. She said I was a prince, but I was contagious. (laughs) And I'd sit back there and make rosary beads. and uh, But I made mine with 11 beads on each decade. And, um, and, and so, you know, by the time I graduated from high school, I had hundreds of mutant rosary beads all over the world. And, uh, and you know how some of these spiritual people are kind of dumb. They don't catch on to things, you know, and I, I couldn't leave there without her knowing how smooth I'd been. And, um, so so uh so I, I went to her and I said, you know, Sister Victoria, um, you know what I've been doing? And she said, yes, you sly little prince. I know what you've been doing. You've been putting extra beads in all the decades of all the rosaries. And she said, I also know why. Don't leave. It's the best part. <laughs> she said, I also know why you've been doing it. And I remember thinking, I hope she tells me because I have the foggiest notion of why I do these things. She said, you've been doing doing it so that people all over the world will pray extra prayers and God's going to give you all the credit. Don't you just hate people like that? (laughs) And and then she said something that frightened me very much. You see, when I was a a young fellow, I had a horrible speech impediment and and I literally had to learn how to talk. and, And I have to concentrate when I talk. But, but then I couldn't talk. I, I wasn't understood very well, and, um, and though it was getting better. But you know how our image of ourselves always lags behind 20 or 30 years? And, um, and she took both of my hands in her hands, and she looked deeply in my eyes, as only spiritual people will do, you know, the obnoxious types. And, and she said to me, she said, the moment I met you, Keith, I knew you were special. She said, I knew that one day God's going to use you and you're going to go all over the place telling people how great our father is. And it terrified me because you see, secretly, I knew I was inadequate to any task. It didn't matter which task I was inadequate to any task because that's the price I pay when I'm riddled with fear. And and I remember how terrified I was. And then she, she showed they, they used to wear these long rosary beads that would bang against the desk when you're taking tests. And and she told me, she said, when I first met you, I put this special medal on here, St. Jude, the patron saint of lost causes. And she said, every time I get to this medal, I pray especially for you. And, and I think a lot about Sister Victoria because after I came to you, I came to realize that uh, that spiritual people are the deepest people. But I saw her as, as shallow and silly because I was all involved in fear. You know, I graduated from high school and didn't know what else to do. And uh, Everybody went to the military back then. It wasn't a matter of if it was where and when. That, that was uh, the choices you had. And, uh, and I didn't know what I was supposed to do. But I was under the impression that everybody else did. You know, the way I kind of viewed the world was, was you all knew what you were going to do with your lives. You didn't have any questions about anything because I looked at you and you looked so confident. You looked like you knew exactly what was going on. I sort of thought that, that maybe somewhere along the line, God put everybody in a room like this one. And he said, all right, he said, now I'm going to go through this one time. Pay attention. And he told you all about everything. And I was in the bathroom. And so I was the only person wandering the earth who didn't know the big picture and all the rest of you knew it because you seemed so confident to me. It wasn't until I got to Alcoholics Anonymous that I found out you didn't know what the hell was going on either. (laughs) And that's the fun of this thing. And that's why, you know, that's it. The grace is living in a world where we don't know the answers, but we can live in a solution. But I didn't know that. So I knew that I had to make a decision about what I wanted to do. And I always thought that you had to go away to make these decisions. So I joined the service. I didn't know what else to do. I, I stood in front of the mirror one day, and I took my shirt off, and I flexed my muscles. And I was about five feet, one inches tall, and I weighed 113 pounds. And whatever else I was, I was a born killer. So <laughs> so I went off and joined the Marine Corps. And I, and, and I didn't know anything about the Marine Corps, and, and I wasn't yet 18 years of age, so my parents had to sign for me. And, uh, and so the recruiter showed up at the house with the papers, and oh, my mother about died, and... So all night my mother's crying. She's saying, "Scott, they'll kill him." And, and my my father kept saying, "Don't worry, Pat. They won't take him." <laughs> and um, and the next morning they we went to Wheeling, West Virginia, and they put me on a bus. And I took the second longest trip of my life. I went to Pittsburgh, which was 60 miles away, and I knew nothing about anything. And uh, and I would that afternoon i was sworn in the marine corps and there were three guys from the pittsburgh area who were sworn in the same day i was and uh and there were the, the four of us were supposed to catch a train at midnight it was about four o'clock in the afternoon and they said to me they said look we're going to go over and have a a beer and a uh a, a, a sandwich and a few beers you want to come with us and i thought what do i know i'm from out of town and so i said yeah that's just what i was thinking and um <laughs> so i followed them over to this place and uh, and I went into this bar in Pittsburgh. And I don't know if you've ever been in a bar in Pittsburgh. It might be like the bars in Atlanta, but, but this place was filled with real men. You know, the kind, they had tattoos, and you know they knew all those words. And, um, and all of them had real women with them. See, real women hang around with real men. And guys like me get what's left. And, um, and I was terrified. And, and, uh, and so we went over and sat at a table, and a bartender came by. He was a real man. He said, what do you want? And I thought, oh, no, a quiz. You know? <laughs> just the way I thought about life. I felt that when you least expected it, somebody was going to say, take out a blank sheet of paper. And, you know, <laughs> put your name in the upper left-hand corner. And uh, That's just the way I thought about life. And, um, and I didn't know what to say, so I looked at the other guys, and they all ordered a beer, so I did too. And then he came back, and he asked the same question. And they gave the same answer. They came back the third time and I ordered first because the thing happened to me that only happens to alcoholics. And now this is my first real drinking experience. And the miracle happened for me. And if you're alcoholic, you know exactly what I mean. If you're not alcoholic, it'll be difficult for you to understand this. But I stood up. I didn't mean to stand up. I probably couldn't have kept from standing up I just stood up and I looked down and the floor was 6 feet 4 inches below me you know? and my right shoulder was out to here and my left shoulder was out to there and the muscles were rippling through my body You know, that mind that had been filled with fear and terror for 17 years boom, was crystal clear and for the first time in my life I understood the big picture and I said, but of course, it's so simple. Why didn't I see it before? It makes perfect sense. And then I looked up, and my heart broke, because this place was filled with a bunch of pathetic, snivelling little men. And they all had women with them, or looking at me with those hungry eyes. You know how they do it.
1: <laughs>
0: and I loved it. And, and, you know, and all of a sudden I knew everything. You know, prior to going into that bar, and this is about the truth, the only thing I knew about... I never even knew anybody had been in the Marine Corps. The only thing I knew about the Marine Corps was they took a certain number of men to South Carolina and drowned them in a swamp. (laughs) The only thing I knew about the Marine Corps... And, uh, and then all of a sudden I knew everything there was to know about the Marine Corps and about everything else. And I spent the rest of that evening going from table to table explaining life <laughs> to all these people. It, I never felt like that in my life. I had the greatest, my sponsor, Tom I, is the greatest member of Alcoholics Anonymous I know. And Tom and I have this ongoing discussion. And he said to me, he said, you know, you could have quit drinking then. I said, Tom, who in the hell would have wanted to? I mean, that would be like going back to jail. I never felt like that before in my life. And I spent the next 12 years trying to recapture that. And it never happened. And, you know, the longer I drank, the further my disease progressed, the further from Pittsburgh I went. There were times when I could glimpse Pittsburgh. And I'd get to a certain point and it would almost be right, but I wouldn't quite get there. Then at the very end, I just shoot past Pennsylvania. I mean, I, you know, I mean, somewhere between the second and third drink, I go, "Ooh, there goes Pennsylvania." I'm never, I'll never get to Pittsburgh now. Oh well, go to Kansas City. And uh, but but it was an awful thing to chase that feeling, and I never had it like that again. And yet, whatever I had to pay was worth it. Somebody asked me one time, "What did you pay for your alcoholism?" And I always thought that's a dumb question, you know. You pay whatever it costs. You just pay whatever it costs. It's worth any price to get back to Pittsburgh. You know, one day I, I, I was in the Marine Corps, and I loved the Marine Corps, and I did very well. I got one of these Dress Blues Award, and I and I got all these meritorious promotions, and I worked hard to get a commission. But I had alcoholism, and my behavior it deteriorated so dramatically that I ended up violating all the values associated with the Marine Corps. I drank on duty. I led a patrol in a blackout in the combat zone. I mean, I did things that good Marines wouldn't do, so I got out. That's what I did with my alcoholism. I violated the principles associated with whatever walk of life I was involved in. Then I blamed the walk of life for why I did what I did, and then I ran away. That's alcoholism to me. I spent those four years loving the Marine Corps and watching myself violated. It's a terrible way to live. You know, one day I went into the NCO club and a guy said, "I said, give me a scotch and water. I said, how much is that? He said, it's 35 cents in your Marine Corps career." And I thought, well, that's not too much to pay to get back to Pittsburgh. And then one day I um, went into a liquor store in Washington D.C. and I got a bottle of gin and I said, "How much is it?" And the guy said, oh, it's six dollars and seventy-five cents in your wife and your two children." And I thought, well, that's a lot. But it's not too much to pay to get back to Pittsburgh. And then one day I went in there after my wife had asked me to leave and I was living in the basement of a dive in Washington, D.C. I went in there, get a bottle of wine. I said, how much is that? They said, well, it's 69 cents in your life. And I thought, that's about right. And I went home and to where I was living. And on May the 13th, 1973, I walked into what passed as a bathroom in this dive with one thought in mind and that was to end my life when I was a, a very 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 young lad I, I grew up in a family that was very devoted to, to our church very very devoted and we prayed the rosary together every evening and we did these things and, and, and as a very young lad I was dedicated to the mother of God Mary and with everything else I left all of that I left it all behind me but a bishop told me one time, he said, you know, he said, uh, the, the woman who took care of God will take care of you. And at your worst moment, she'll be there. You know, on May the 13th, 1973, I stood in front of a mirror, fully intending to commit suicide. I had all the bills, I had everything I needed. And a woman's voice told me not to do it. And I never knew what it was. It took me six or seven years to put that together. I had to do the eighth and ninth step with the church I grew up with before I could re- before I, all that came back to me. But that voice said that to me, and all of a sudden I remembered that my ex-wife had given me a phone number, and she said, "I can't do anything for you." She gave me a couple phone numbers. She said, "Maybe these people can help you." I can't. And I ran out. And I hadn't thought about those numbers till that very instant. And I ran out and I opened a drawer and I found one of those numbers and I called it. And it happened to be a little treatment center. Now, a lot of speakers are going to stand up and say a lot of bad things about treatment centers. And that's certainly their opinion. But I must tell you, I'm convinced if that place had not been there, I wouldn't be here. That's just my story. I called them up and I said, I didn't know who they were. I didn't know what they did. I didn't know where they were. All I know is a, was a woman on the other end of this phone and i said to her if you can't help me i think i'm going to die and she talked to me for a little while and she got my phone number and cuz i know she now i know that she knew i was suicidal she got my number and she she called she called me right back she said i'll call you right back and and she called back about 30 seconds later and she said uh, can you come out here in a few days and i told her yes and i had no idea the day i'd been drinking around the clock i had no idea about anything and And I hung up the phone, and that's when I discovered that great truth. And I think if you're kind of new, I urge you to go home tonight and maybe get by yourself and spend a few quiet moments and try to figure out what it is that God's given you that's special. Because I think God gives each and every one of us something special when we begin this walk. And here's what he gave me. I looked up, and I had a fifth of scotch on a draining board. And it was open and just maybe one drink out of it. And I knew that if I took one drink of alcohol I'd die and knowing that would never keep me from taking it and I ran over and I began to try to pour it out and I knew I wouldn't I never heard of Alcoholics Anonymous I certainly never heard of the first step of Alcoholics Anonymous but I knew to the very fiber of my being that moment that I was powerless over alcohol and I threw that bottle in in a sink and it broke And I'm not being dramatic. I'm being perfectly honest. If that bottle had bounced, I wouldn't be here. Because, you see, I'm powerless over alcohol. And if I take one drink of alcohol, I'll die. And knowing that will never keep me from taking it. And that's more true today than it was then. That never changes. That's. I'll tell you how I I envision this. And if this is useful, I I welcome you to use it. I kind of see... May the thirteenth, nineteen seventy-three is a special day in my life. I mean, it's very special in our house. We celebrate it. Uh, <laughs> my wife Julia cross stitches. I mean, she cross stitches. I mean, yeah, everything. I mean, if you sit down, she'll cross stitch you. And, um, <laughs> and but most of all, she cross stitches May the thirteenth, nineteen seventy-three. It's on everything. And, um, and that's an important date, but it's not the. Date. You see, somewhere on that date, in a blackout, I took a drink that I don't remember. It's a very important drink, but it's not the drink that matters to me, you see. The drink that matters to me is the one I must take. To me, being alcoholic means I must drink again unless there's a miracle. And that's where you come in. You provide the miracle I need to not drink again. And, and the way I see it is, is this, there's a drink ahead of me. It has my name on it. It says, Keith's Drink. Okay. Keith's Drink. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's a beer, a scotch, or a martini. I have no idea what it is. Maybe a glass of wine. I don't know. But what I do know is, if I ever catch up to it, I'll drink it. Because you see, I'm powerless over it. I'm, I've been around a lot of other people's drinks, and I'm not concerned about that. But there's one out there with my name on it. If you're real new, if you're real, real new this moment, it might only be out there five minutes. You know, and people will say, "Look, don't drink. Five minutes at a time." And then you hang around. You sit next to the right person. You ever notice if you can sit next to the right person, you don't want to drink? It's an amazing phenomenon. I never figured that out. People, the old timers say, "Sit here. You won't want to drink." I sit there and I didn't want to drink. Amazing. Amazing. sit next to the wrong guy, you want to drink. I can't figure it out. You, know? you have to sit next to the winners and. uh But then if you're around a little while, say 30 days, you start feeling a little bit better, you know, you pick up a chip, you know, and pretty soon the drink might be a day ahead of you, starting to get comfortable, you know, and then you're around maybe a year, year and a half, two years, and it might be 30 days ahead of you, and you're really feeling comfortable now, and then you say, you know, I need some balance in my life. Uh, Balance is euphemism for cutting back on meetings, you see. (laughs) There's more to life than meetings. I mean, why should I go without sex? They're not doing it. And you start running your own program. You know the deal? My program instead of our program. And then pretty soon you start getting irritable and you're sitting there saying, I wish that fat guy would sit down and shut up. Uh, yeah. Who died made her queen. And, uh... You know, all that stuff. And we call that a dry drunk. And what that means is, is we're catching up to the drink. But if you ever catch up to it, you'll drink it. And I know it's true because m- one of my special things is to go to hospitals. I love to go to hospitals and see people who used to be with us. And, and they'll all say the same thing. I don't know what happened. And I can say, I know what happened. You caught up to the drink with your name on it. Because okay? you didn't do what you needed to do to keep it pushed ahead of you. And my goal is to live to maybe be 100. You know, when I'm 99, I'm going to really clean it up in case Sister Victoria was right. And, uh, and then I'll die. Maybe six months later, maybe a year later, somebody will say, whose drink's that? And they'll say, oh, that's Keats, but he died. You see, I want to die before I ever catch up to the drink. And the only chance I have of doing that is being with you. And, and, and the miracle is you. I did a lot of things. I lived in monasteries. I I did a lot of things to control my drinking or to not drink. But it wasn't until I found you that I found a way to live and not drink. I went to my first meeting on May the 16th, 1973. And it it was an experience I'll never forget in my life. It was on the second step. There was a man who stood at the door and shook your hand when you came, and they called him a greeter. He was sort of a mutant. I mean, you know, he had like two heads, you know. I mean, I was, uh, I was a shoe person. I used to always look at people's shoes. and But wherever I turned my head, his head was there. <laughs> so he had to have two heads. And, and then he'd look in your eyes, you know, like those obnoxious spiritual people do. And, uh, and he shook my hand and he said, You know, son, you keep coming here, you, you never have to drink again. And I thought, what a strange thing to say to somebody you don't know. And I went on in a meeting, and he introduced me to an old woman who was about ten days older than dirt. She got me a half a cup of coffee and sat next to me and began to pat me. And and my skin's crawling all over my body, and this old pervert is sitting there patting me. And, uh, And she looked at me, and that old face exploded into a beautiful smile, and she said, Honey, you keep coming here. You never have to be alone again. And I began to cry. I honestly didn't know that what I was was alone. I never knew that. And I'd always been alone. Of course, the worse the alcoholism got, the more isolated and the more alone I became. But even as a frightened little kid, I was alone with a speech impediment. I was alone with something that lived under my bed. I was alone with a fear of height. I was alone. And I didn't know you didn't have to be alone. The problem with living an abnormal way of life is that you think it's normal. And I would have told you prior to coming to you that I was living a perfectly normal life. And I was always looking for what had gone wrong, who had done what to me. You know, when when I was still married, uh, we went to see a psychologist. uh, And he's a nice man, and I'm sure he was a fine psychologist. He just didn't know anything about alcoholism. And my wife was seeing him, which explained why I drank. And, um, and and he asked her to ask me to come in. And I went in, and I, I knew what she'd been doing. She'd been exaggerating my drinking. And um, <laughs> But I decided I was going to be perfectly honest with this man. And, 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 and I went in, and I sat down, and, and he said to me, he said, your wife's very concerned about your drinking. I said, I know she is. I don't understand that. And uh, I said, I don't understand why she doesn't drink. I mean, she's got a lot of problems. If she drank, she'd probably feel better. <laughs> and he agreed that, you know, she needed something. And, uh, <laughs> and we talked for a little while. And then he said to me, how much do you drink? And I told him what I thought was the truth, which is about half of the truth. And, uh, and, and then I said to him, do you think I'm an alcoholic? And my heart was pounding in, you know. And he thought for a minute, he said, no, I don't think so. He said, but if you keep drinking that much, you will be. I said, well, when? I thought it was important, you know, made him very angry. He said, I don't know, a couple of years. So immediately I thought, well, I'll drink for a year and a half and quit in a lot, plenty of time. I mean, you know, you don't want to be an alcoholic. And uh... <laughs> But he told me what my problem was. You see, my problem was I had a poor self-image. And uh, and uh, And so what he did was we're going to treat this poor self-image. He brought my wife in. And he said, the problem with your husband is he has a poor self-image, and part of it's your problem. Your fault. So I immediately liked this guy. You see, and he said he grew up in poverty, and and, and he never felt as though he was special because he had all these brothers and sisters. And he went to work at age 13, and he's going on, and I'm thinking this guy really understands human nature, and and uh, and he said he suffered a lot of losses, and he's married to someone who's having problems, and, and he has a poor self-image. So, so what they did was they gave me these affirmations. See. And uh, what he did was he made my very own affirmations from my history, Keith's affirmations. And he told my wife, he said, every morning, Keith's going to stand in front of the mirror and he's going to affirm himself. And if you can, I want you to stand with him, because if you're standing with him when he affirms himself, he'll even be more affirmed. (laughs) Well, I was so thrilled to find out I wasn't an alcoholic. I got very drunk that night. And evidently in a blackout, I called my wife those names I tended to call her when I was in a blackout. And the next morning I was affirming myself all by myself, I can tell you that. <laughs> but I stood in front of that mirror and I looked at those bloodshot eyes, you know, and uh, and the first thing on this was, Keith, today you're a winner.
1: <laughs>
0: today you're a good husband. To My wife didn't think so, but this is my affirmation. Today, you're a good father. You know, today, you're going to go into the hospital and do good research. Today, you're going to... And and I run down this whole list. I got about halfway through this. I said, today, you're full of crap. That's what you... I mean, I may have been an alcoholic, but I wasn't stupid. I mean, I knew none of this stuff was true. And you see, that's the genius of Alcoholics Anonymous because, see, what this man wanted me to do was to take a lot of things that may or may not have been true and put them on a foundation and a structure that was riddled with fear and doubt and constructed out of lies and all those things. And I, I come to you, and what do you tell me to do? You tell me clean house. Clean house. And I want to tell you about my problems. You weren't interested in my problems. I'd say, I got a problem. They'd say, So what? Of course you have problems. That's why you're here. They'd say, Do you have a sponsor? I said, Well, not yet. That's your problem. They'd say. They'd say, Why don't you have a sponsor? I said, Well I can't find anybody I can relate to. You know. Back then it was important to relate. And and they said, You well, you want somebody to relate to, go to a bar. You know? If you want to get sober, find someone you want to be like if and when you grow up and ask them to show you how they did that. I mean they were merciless those old timers. <laughs> and I was this head case running around. That's really crazy. I didn't sleep. You ever you ever any been any non sleepers here? I'd go days for sleeping, and then at the end of the meeting, they'd say, Anybody here have something they want to say? Like, they'd talk about stuff during the meeting, like steps or something, you know. They didn't talk about anything related to me, like problems. But uh, <laughs> So at the very end, they'd say, Anybody have anything to say? And I'd say, I got something to say. And they'd go, Oh, what do you want, Keith? And I'd say, I can't sleep. See? And the group would take turns. They, they loved us. They'd take turns, and they'd say, Nobody ever died from not sleeping, you know. <laughs> i jump up and scream, no, but people die from saying nobody ever died from not sleeping. I'm <laughs> surrounded by these old fools. I mean, everybody in AA. Now, let me tell you about old timers. Okay? Let me tell you about old timers. you got a few of them around here. Uh, I'm going to tell you the truth about them, okay? They lie. Uh, they do. They're going to tell you they come here because they need to. They don't need to come here anymore. They come here because the only enjoyment they get out of life is watching people like you and me suffer. That's the truth. If you don't believe that, find one of them after the meeting and tell them a problem. What's the first thing they'll do? They burst into laughter. Now, especially if it's a sexual problem. They love sexual You know, I ran around for the first few months in AA as, as impotent, which will really put a crimp in your sex life. You know. <laughs> and of course, I'm keeping this a secret. I, I didn't want to tell my sponsor because I knew he wouldn't want to sponsor anybody who was impotent. <laughs> so I made a mistake of going to one of these old fools, and uh, and I said, I, want, I like talking about something. He said, What do you want? I said, Well, I'm not, he said, What do you want? I don't have all day, so I'm going to die soon. <laughs> And I said, "Well, I said, I, I, I said I'm impotent." He burst into laughter. He laughed. At me. He said, uh, "He said, oh, he said, you know, he said a lot of us had that problem. It'll go away." I said, "Well, when?" But I thought it was important. He said, "Well, you got a full social calendar." Hey. You know. He said, "A." He said, "A couple of years." I said, "A couple of years." You know. The other thing about old timers, they lose track of time. I don't <laughs> So I went to um I went to my sponsor and I told Dan and Dan said to me, He said, Oh, I said, uh, got the old impotent problem, huh? He said, uh, a lot of us have had that. Uh, I said, When, Dan? And he said, Well, let's look at it another way. I said, you know, Dan, that's um, That's really one of these either-or issues. uh. And he said, no, it really isn't. He said, well, look at it another way. He said, you have a lot of problems, don't you? And I said, you know, as a matter of fact, I do. And he said, every time somebody else has a problem, you have it too. I said, yeah, it's the strangest thing. And he said, you probably have hundreds of problems. I said, thousands. He said, okay, thousands of problems. He said, "Now all the problems you have, can you think of one that's going to be more fun to work on than that one?" (laughs) See, see, that's what sponsors do. They, they put a smile on tragedy. That's that's what they do. I had an old idea that, that I had an old idea that if you had a problem, you had to get an answer for that problem that there's one answer for one problem. If you don't get the answer for the problem, a big hand comes down and makes you drink. Now, I don't know where I got that. I probably made it up, but it was my idea. And so I'd get a pro- I'd get a problem, and I'd run around frantically getting an answer, and I'd go to some old fool, and I'd say, well, I got this going on. And they'd say, well, they this and that. i said, well, thank you. got the answer. I don't have to drink. I went to Don K. one time, and I told Don this problem. I don't know what it was, but it was a big one. And... uh I think it was August of 73 problem. Big problem. That was a bad month, August of 73. And Don looked at me and shook his head. He said, you know, Keith, I've never had any experience with that. And I said, oh, no. And he said, but there's a man down at the Metropolis Club. He said, I want you to go down and find him. He can tell you the answer to that. So I went downtown to the Metropolis Club, and I, I went in, and I had about an hour and a half to live. You know, the clock's ticking. And... And I went in, and I asked for this man, and they said he's out on a 12-step call. I said, well, what's he doing on a 12-step call? I need to talk to him. And a woman said, you sit down, darling. He'll be back. You just sit right there. So he came back, and he had a drunk with him. And I ran up to him, and I said, i got to talk to you." He said, well, we're going to start the meeting now. He said, we'll talk after the meeting. I said, well, you know, I may not be here after the meeting. He said, you sit next to me. He said, no one sitting next to me ever died. So I sat next to him, and and an hour later... uh, we sit down to discuss my problem, and I told him this problem, and he looked at me. He's a great old, he's old black guy, great old guy. And he looked at me, and he had the saddest look on his face. He said, you know, boy, he said, I don't know the answer to that problem. And I said, oh, you're my last hope. And he said, well, let me make a suggestion. I said, anything. He said, don't drink even if your ass falls off. And I remember driving home thinking... That's the most profound thing I ever heard in my life. And and I discovered that this isn't about answers to problems. This is about a way of living that's a solution for anything that happens to us. We can handle, with the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and God as we understand them, we can handle not only life, but we can handle life with style. I have watched people in this fellowship over the last 20 years handle virtually everything there is to handle. And they handle it with style. And they handle it with grace. And that's the beauty of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's the beauty of our way of life. You know, I had this uh, this uh, sponsor who uh, who just loved me. I mean, he just loved me. And, and nothing was ever wrong that happened to me. I, I called him. I, I was on my way to work one day. I was all dressed up. I looked pretty good. And I was on my way to work. The problem was, I couldn't remember where I worked. <laughs> this is a true story. I was in my car and I didn't know where to go. And I was terrified. And I, so I stopped. I called. He used to give me, he had a, I had a, 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 his business card with a dime taped to it. And so he told me, if you ever need me, call me. So I called him. Right, and he was at his office. He said, hello. I said, Dan, this is me. He said, Keith? I said, yeah. He said, what can I do for you? I said, I just just wondering how you were doing. <laughs> he, said, he said, well, I'm fine, Keith. He said, what's all that noise? I said, well, I'm calling you from a phone booth. And he said, your car break down? I said, no, Dan, car's fine. Um, he said, Keith, what's the problem? And I said, well, I said, it's not a big problem. I just uh, can't seem to remember where I work. <laughs> And he said, "All right, you got the old I can't remember where I work problem." I said a lot of us have had that. Uh, I've been around a long time. I've never met anybody else who had that particular problem. But you know, he told me where I worked, and immediately I knew. You know, I mean, I not only knew where I worked, I knew what I did. It was like, it
1: was, it was like
0: all in one big package, you know. And and I said, Dan, I really feel foolish. She said, Look. He said, Don't feel foolish. She said. You drank a lot of alcohol. And he said, your brain's been through a bad time. And he said, this is all going to come back. It's all going to be all right. And he said, may I make a suggestion? I said, of course, Dan, I'm honest, willing, and open-minded. He said, uh, if you ever have this problem again, try to remember to look on the front bumper of your car. He said, you have a parking sticker. <laughs> and I remember driving on into work thinking, where do these people learn these things? <laughs>
1: you
0: know, we heard, the, we heard the steps read tonight. And uh, I'll tell you, boy, you know, being sober is an awful lot of fun. But, but you know, being sober is also an awful lot of work. It's the most difficult thing I ever did. It's harder than the steel mills I worked in or harder than the coal mines or harder than college or any of the other things I've ever done, harder than the Marine Corps. But that's only right because the payoff is greater than anything I've ever imagined in my entire life. And, you know, the price that I've had to pay for being in this program is a great price. It's the greatest price I've ever paid. You see, the price I've had to pay is being wrong. and and I never wanted to be wrong. I would refashion the argument. I would never admit I was wrong. I'd put the argument on a shelf and come back six months later after I changed the rules, drag the argument back out and argue until whoever it was, they finally said, all right, all right, all right, you're right. And I'd say, well, that's good. But being wrong was the problem. And and, you know, I went to one of those old bulls one day and and I don't know, I was working with some kind of problem and uh, instead of a solution. And he said, Keith, he said, I want you to do me a favor. He said, I want you to borrow some lipstick from one of the girls in the program. And I want you to go home and write on the mirror, Keith, you are wrong. He said, now, I don't want you doing anything else for the girls in the program. He said, oh, that's right, you can't. <laughs> Word spreads in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said to him, I said, well, you know, I can't do that, you see, because my problem is I have a poor self-image, and uh, I need to be affirmed. Don't ever talk that way to an old-timer. <laughs> they hadn't read any of those books, I can promise you that. And, uh, so I got a tube of lipstick, and I ran home, and I wrote on him here, Keith, you were wrong. And I was disgusted, and I threw it in a trash can. And, and the next, uh, you know, I went to bed that night. It was a normal night. Remember 90 days? Ugh. You know, I'd lay down and my mind woke up for the first time that day. And it was making up for lost time. You're never going to make it. You're really not an alcoholic. What's going to happen when they find out you're not an alcoholic? They're going to kick you out of there. Well, they're going to kick you out of there anyway. What difference does it make? Well, you're going to be alone the rest of your life. What difference does it make? You're impotent. You're probably going to go to work, and they're going to find out you don't know how to do the job you've been doing for six years. Well, you're hopelessly in debt anyway. I mean, I must be working, and on and on and on. And then I'd finally drift off to sleep, and then the leg cramps. Remember the leg cramps? Oh, come out of a sleep. I'd be standing next to my bed, and I never remember getting up. i just be standing there in a sweat. And, and, and five minutes before the alarm would go off, I'd file, sound asleep. Remember that? Take three alarms to wake me up. And I got up, and I just felt awful. And the, the voices were still awake, and they were still talking to me. And they didn't go to sleep till about ten in the morning. And 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 I go in the kitchen. I'm making coffee. I was so depressed, I wanted to cry. You know. And I went in the bathroom, and I looked on the mirror, and it said, "Keith, you're wrong." I said, "Well, thank God, because if I'm right, I'm in a hell of a lot of trouble." You know. And so the great gift is being wrong. And, and and I think that's what the eighth and ninth step is designed for me to do. It's to fix all those relationships I've been wrong about. You know, I went back to these parents who I, I would have told you my father never told me he loved me. You know, I never allowed my father to tell me those things. I never allowed for my father to be sick too. He he grew up in an alcoholic home and he's too new fear. And after I was sober a while and I began praying about it, I remember instances where my father, who was employee of the month and foreman of the month, month after month after month, but do you know if he overslept one morning, he was convinced they were going to fire him. And he lived. And then he'd say, I'm going to be fired. And then we're all going to starve to death. And then what are we going to do? I remember even as a kid, I thought, well, once you starve to death, it's sort of over. You know? <laughs> but, you know, because I was frightened, I needed my father not to be frightened. And he was frightened, too. And that's the crime that he was guilty of. He was guilty of the same crime I was guilty of. And that was being afraid of life. And I found out I was wrong about my father. I found out I was wrong about people like Sister Victoria. I went down to a retreat house down in, uh, in southern Maryland, and, and I went to find someone I could talk to and make amends to. And I was walking around looking for some young hip priest who would understand the deep significance of this humble act I was about to perform. And, and I never found one, but what I did find was an old man sitting in a room by himself in a rocking chair reading his breviary. And I knocked on a door, and his name was Father Jim. And I said, Father, may I speak with you? He said, Of course, son, come in. So I sat in a rocking chair across from him. And he rocked, and I rocked, and we talked. And I told him how it was with me and how, you know, I was out drunk and and on and on and on and how much I feared spiritual people like him. And I told him, I said, You know, I've come here to make amends for all the horrible things I've said about people like you. I called you hypocrites and all those things. And he put the book down, and he got up, and he put his arms around me and began to pat me and they began to cry. And he said to me, he said, you know, son, he said, God sent you here. He said, I've been a priest for 50 years. He said, I have a, a, an illness that's going to allow me to go home pretty soon. And he said, I was just doing an inventory. And I was just asking God where I had fallen short in my life. And he said, you know, he said too many times in these last 50 years. He said, I, I've uh, been happy and comfortable with the 99 who agree with me. And he said, I haven't left them and gone out after the one that was lost. And he said, I'm so sorry you had to be out there all alone. And what I discovered was I was wrong about spiritual people. Spiritual or religious people are just doing the best they can with what they got today. I drove up to New Jersey to see dumb Denny. <laughs> and I went in and we began to talk. And his wife, Jan, knew that this was a different discussion. And... Uh, and so she excused herself and went to bed. And I began to tell Denny about how tough it was living in the same house with him. I said, you know, I said, you always did everything right. And, and I said, I was, always felt so, so intimidated by you. And I said, I was, I've always been jealous of you. I said, so what I've done is I've impugned your reputation in the family. And whenever I got a chance, I said something negative. And I said, I stand fully ready to make whatever amends I can. I said, I've already reversed that. And I'll do anything else that you feel appropriate. And he looked at me and he started to laugh and he said, Well, Keith, he said, if I owe you an amends, if you owe me an amends, and I owe you an amends. He said, All my life, he said, I've admired you more than any human being I've known. He said, Nothing ever stopped you. He said, You didn't give a shit about anything. <laughs> he said, I've always been frightened and you never have been. He said, if, if things weren't going well in one country, you'd go to another country. He said, <laughs> He said, you've been in more universities than I can keep track of. He said, so you got degrees and everything. Uh, He said, but I was always afraid. He said, I could never change. And I've always admired you. And he said, any chance I had, and there were a lot of them, to say something negative about you, I did. And I discovered that Denny and I weren't good or bad. We were just different. We're just different human beings. And God made us that way because he uses our differences. And now we're best friends. We're best buddies. You know, and he really has uh, been very, very successful in his chosen work. And uh, and I'm very proud of him. And one of the things I'm most grateful for is, is when he gets another promotion, he waits in his office till I get home. And he calls me up and he talks to me about it, even before he talks to his wife. And he says to me, what would your friends in AA say about this? Or what would your friends in AA say about that? He loves you. He loves you very much. He uh, he's one of the, he's the most famous non-alcoholic since Dr. Silkworth. Somebody told him one time. Uh, uh, it was a funny story about that. Uh, he was introducing himself. He just it was a vice president of sales in this large corporation, and he had his he'd just been transferred to another region, and he was trying to introduce himself, and everybody was very nervous about meeting their new boss and this and that. And Denny's a pretty laid-back guy. And so he began telling jokes and trying to loosen these people up, but they were really tense and tight. So he said, yeah, he said, I'm from a small town in Ohio, a place called Martin's Ferry. And a guy jumped up and said, you're dumb, Danny. And then he, <laughs> he froze. And uh, then he said, you know, my brother, Keith, he said, yeah, yeah but you know I have been wrong and I was wrong about that church I grew up in I criticized them and I found everything wrong but what I didn't find was everything right I was wrong about the nuns and I told Denny I said remember the nuns that used to hit my knuckles with the roller, and they used the centimeter side on me and uh, <laughs> and he said I seem to remember that happening a couple times he said but most of all I remember that there were old women who just gave their entire lives to teach us and I said well that's one way to look at it you know <laughs> And what I've discovered as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous working these steps is that I've been wrong, and that's a great gift. And 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 my second sponsor, a guy named Sandy, and I used to play this game called Old Ideas, and I'd invite you to start playing it. You know, find out how many old ideas you've gotten rid of recently, and it's a lot of fun. You know, how many times have we discovered that things weren't the way we thought they were? You know, I now live in Carolina Beach, North Carolina. And up until a few months ago, I lived in Fayetteville. And and almost five years ago, I married Julia. And uh, it happened when I decided that I was going to give up and be single and live a celibate life because I was one of these people who got themselves in a lot of trouble with sex. And I didn't know how to use that any better than I knew how to use alcohol. And I just got sick and tired of the serious relationships I was in and out of and all the heartbreak and all the damage and everything that went with it. And I got on my knees and I prayed all night one night. It was July the 4th, 1985. And I, woke, I got up the, uh, July the 5th. I got off my knees and, and I walked out and told a dear friend of mine who's since gone to the big meeting in the sky. I said, Dick, I prayed all night. He said, I know you did. I said, I'm not getting into any more relationships. I hurt me. And I hurt the people I'm in relationships with. I don't know how to do this. And he said, that's a great idea. And that night, I met Julia. And that's the way it is in AA when you give up. But this time, I did it differently. This time, I went to my sponsor, Tom, who's the best married guy I know. I mean, he's really married. And I went, I mean, really married. And I went to Tom. He's married physically, spiritually, emotionally, in every way. And I went to Tom and I said, Tom, I don't know a thing about being married or about relationships. He said, I seem to have heard something about that. <laughs> I said, would you teach me how to do it? And, you know, I never made a move that I didn't talk to Tom about it. I said to him, I said, you know, I, she's a beautiful woman. And I thought, boy, if she could have anybody else but me. She'd take him. So what I better do is capture her. So we'll have an exclusive relationship. And I went to Tom. I said, I think we're ready for an exclusive relationship. He said, you're not ready for an exclusive relationship. He said, I'll tell you when you're ready for an exclusive relationship. <laughs> and so we didn't have an exclusive relationship for a while. And, and then one day he said, I think you're ready. And so we started an exclusive relationship. And then and then I said to him one day, I said, you know, Tom, I said, uh, I said we're going to get married. He said, well, you have to get engaged. I said, ah, that's an old-fashioned idea. He said, well, it got to be that way for a reason, Keith. And, uh, <laughs> and so we became engaged. And... New, uh, Christmas Eve, before we went off to Midnight Mass, I built a fire in the fireplace, and Julia came over, and uh, I had the ring in my pocket, and I was going to get on one knee, and I'd already spoken to her parents, and they had given me permission, and uh, and she was sitting there. I didn't know how to do it or how to say it, and I felt very clumsy, and, and she got up and walked into the bathroom to powder her nose, and I chased her in there, <laughs> and I put the I put the ring on the wrong finger with the wrong hand and said, Would you marry me? and uh, And she fell into my arms in tears and said, I'd love to marry you. And we went off to midnight mass and we just looked at each other and cried through the whole mass. And I never knew until that moment how much I wanted to be engaged and how different being engaged is from being in an exclusive relationship. And then I came up with my next brilliant idea. I said to Tom, I said, you know, Julia can transfer over here now and so we could live together because we're going to get married in a few months. And he said, Keith, why do you want to ruin it now? He said, that violates your spiritual principles. He said, why do you want to do that now? He said, you work so hard. He said, do it right. Do it right. So on May the 20th, will be five years this coming May, we were married. And I took my wife home and carried her across the threshold. And I have been really married from that time <laughs> until this time. And you know how wrong I was about myself. Sometimes I take out a... I, I squirreled away one of our wedding pictures that I keep. And I sometimes I take it out and look at it. And and I see this... You know, all my life I was never adequate. So I worked real hard. I used to run marathons and I used to be real skinny and I used to do all those things, you know. So then I could find the right woman. You know, I take a look at this picture and, and I, I'm fat and I'm gray and... Uh, Most of my teeth aren't mine, and I'm standing next to the woman I want to spend the rest of my life with. And that shows how wrong I've been about how things really are. I want to congratulate you on 18 years of service to yourselves and to the alcoholics who walk in off the street. This is a very special place. I can feel it in the room, and I can feel it in you. And I hope you have many, many, many more years. And I'd like from time to time to maybe come down and just stop in for a meeting and uh, just see how it's going. You know, I really do love you. I'm going to go back and tell Tom that he was right about you. This is a wonderful place filled with wonderful people. Happy birthday. God bless you.